On this episode of Trading Camp, we interview Kevin Green, Senior Market Correspondent at TD Ameritrade Network. He shares valuable insights from his 10-plus year career in professional finance and discusses his framework for conducting top-down analysis to reach sound investment theses. This episode is brought to you by Rocket Scooter, the next generation of trading tools that will replace everything you know about trading. Built by engineers for the retail trader, Rocket Scooter's revolutionary algorithm is the first of its kind. It uncovers institutional positions and reveals market maker risk and hedging in real time using their AI scanner and algorithmic charting. Rocket Scooter has invented 15 unique indicators that predict high volume before it happens, allowing you to visualize price levels where big money is most interested. There is nothing like it. To see how Rocket Scooter is changing the game for retail traders, check out their three-month pro trial. Right now, they are offering three months of Rocket Scooter Pro for only $35 a month, knocked down from the original price of $179 a month. Take advantage of this monster deal by heading over to the link in the show notes and get started using Rocket Scooter today. Trading Camp has partnered with Elite Trader Funding, a proprietary trading firm focused on giving traders the opportunity to profit from the markets without risking their own capital. ETF offers a range of evaluations which tests your abilities as a trader. When you pass, you'll be able to choose from funded accounts ranging from $10,000 to $300,000. The only risk is a monthly flat fee. The ETF community provides an excellent learning environment and networking opportunities for those serious about taking their game to the next level. We are excited to offer our listeners 30% off of any trading evaluation on ETF's site except for Fast Track. It's so hard for me to sit back here in this studio looking at a guy out here hollering my name. When last year I spent more money on spilled liquor in bars from one side of this world to the other than you made. You're talking to the Rolex wearing, diamond ring wearing, kiss stealing, woo, wheel of dealing. Ladies and gentlemen, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to TCP episode 84, about to get underway. We've got a very special guest with us. We have somebody who does things a little bit differently than most of our guests. As you guys know, most of our guests are retail traders who spend a lot of time day trading the markets. But we have brought on a professional for today's episode who's really going to help us dive into what's going on, not only in the market, but also in our economy as a whole. As I mentioned, pumped to get you guys this conversation. Noah, what's going on, brother? I can see that the uh, the AirPods have failed you. Noah's wearing wired headphones for everybody who's not watching the YouTube. I made the switch to wired headphones, you know, about a week ago. Um, and you know what? It, I've, I've never lived better, honestly. It, it's a, it's a <laughs> change that you should true. really consider making. But Outside of that, super excited to get into um, this episode. Like you said, I think it'll be good to switch it up and um, really talk about what's going on in our market right now, particularly as things are a little bit slower through these summer months and uh, prepare ourselves for the second half of the year coming into fall. So excited to get into it. All right. It's time to bring on our guest, Kevin Green. Kevin, welcome to the show, brother. Thank you for having me. Kevin, as I mentioned, we are thrilled to have you on the show, we came across your page and have spoken with you briefly on the Wolf Spaces. So shout out to Wolf. Um, you always provide a ton of awesome knowledge and value during that short time that we have on Tuesday mornings. And through those conversations, Noah and I were talking, we're like, hey, we would love to get to know you a little bit better, get to know about your background, understand how you got involved in the market. So if you don't mind just going ahead and diving right into your story. Yeah, definitely. Well, I appreciate you having me. And yeah, shout out to the Wolf. Uh, really good work that they're doing over there. Um, and no, I just have to say, you know, wired headphones, man, I would love to have them, but now they don't even have phones that even have the, the connections anymore, man. So it's like they're trying to phase us out, man. They're trying to phase us out. Yeah, yeah. They're forcing us, the <laughs> matrix. No, so I have actually, uh, I started off actually trading around 14, 15 years old, uh, trading Forex. So 
I was able to trade overnight um, while I actually went to school during the day. And my mom was always in the financial market. So I was, you know, waking up to Squawk Box and going to sleep uh, with, you know, CNBC on as well. Um, just kind of fell in love with it and just became a little bit of a second nature. So I ended up uh, going to school um, at a junior college at Wabanzi Community College. Uh, for uh, business and was able to get a scholarship there. So I was a basketball player. I was a you know a formidable player in Illinois. Uh, played against some of the big names that are definitely in the league right now. But I messed up my shoulder during a summer league game. So ended up uh, going to junior college instead of uh, some of the D2 schools that were recruiting me. And it was the best decision I've ever made. And I would say anybody that's listening, you know, junior college is, is the route to go. The first two years are definitely just going to be the same. Um, as going to a big university. And if you can find one that's close to a big university, you can still party. So uh, got done with that, went to Aurora University, studied finance, worked full time, went to school at nights. Uh, definitely uh, worked in the uh, banking industry for a very long time. Then I got an opportunity to work uh, at Edward Jones. Ended up moving down to Arizona, worked in their corporate office, and I was a financial advisor uh, for about 20 to 25 ba- uh, branches that didn't have um, financial advisors. So that was actually really fun. It was at, at the time of like Wolf of Wall Street. So I felt like I was like doing something real big, but it's definitely a tough business when you get to uh, the financial advising space. Uh, ended up opening up my own office, uh, well, taking over an office uh, back in Illinois because I'm originally from Chicago. Uh, did that for a couple of months and then uh, got offered a position over at Options Express, which was owned by Charles Schwab at the time. Uh, so at Options Express, I was a derivatives broker, um, and I also uh, managed the fixed income desk there. So I was the fixed income principal, which was crazy. I was, uh, what, 20, uh, 23, 24, uh, managing uh, you know, the, the ins and outs when it comes to the regulatory environment, placing pretty large trades, helping the firm uh, meet their capital requirements when it comes to federal regulations, things of that nature. And then... Um, also worked on our compliance and advocacy team. So there was a lot of uh, different hats that I wore. I also actually managed the short sell desk at the same time as well. So I had four different hats. It was a small brokerage shop uh, right outside, of, right in Chicago off of Monroe. Uh, it was a great opportunity because it was not only being able to learn the financial markets from very experienced traders out there that were on the floor of the exchange, uh, but also not only getting into derivatives, options, futures, but also having my hand in the uh, the fixed income markets definitely made me well-rounded. And then there was an opportunity uh, that came up that uh, you know my manager and director were like, hey, you should go out to Denver, uh, take over a team. A derivatives team. And I was like, no, man, I'm not going out to Denver. It's way too cold. You know, I'm from Chicago. So that's what we think. We think Denver's has, you know, 12 feet of snow year round. Chicago is probably the coldest place on the planet. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've ever been to. I went during the winter and, you know, I'm a I'm a Floridian. So I don't like the cold to begin with. But I was in Chicago during the winter and just walking around in the city. The wind, obviously the windy city. It's no joke. It was freezing. Yeah. So it's funny to hear you say that you think Colorado is cold. Oh, no. That's what I thought before I came out here. And then they were like, well, go out there, check it out. Came out here, fell in love with it. So I ended nice. up uh, taking over this team. I've been out here for about seven years now and then um, took over the team. I was doing some media uh, stuff for Charles Schwab as well for um, a network that we had called Schwab Live Daily, which was more of a podcast based. Uh, so I hosted a show there, and then I also was uh, you know, a guest on several different shows a week. Uh, and then that's kind of how I got over to the TD Ameritrade Network. I was at first uh, a contributor for about a year, and then an opportunity came up that I just could not refuse. So now I'm over at the TD Ameritrade Network as a senior markets correspondent, loving it. Uh, we will be actually rebranding here in about two weeks to the Schwab Network. Uh, so really excited to see that new, uh, you know, new uh, type of branding out there, new uh, media clips and things of that nature. So that's kind of my my base uh, where I'm from. I've always been active in trading. I really do, uh, I want to say specialize, but I really do focus on the options market uh, and futures market as well as the equities. Equities is a part of my job, uh, but mainly uh, macro, mainly focusing on sectors, uh, money flow, options flow. Uh, and then once again, that commodity. So that's really what I have a passion in. But just trading in general, is just it's just a lot of fun. And Kevin, c- c- very quickly before we continue, how how old are you currently? 
I just turned 33. Based on your story, it's like you've already lived like three lives. <laughs> yeah. You were telling us that you had you took over an office, uh, financial advising office, and then you and then you were like, yeah. And at the time, you know, I was like, I, I forget exactly what you were saying, but then you were trading, and you were like, at the time, I was like 23 or 24. I'm thinking like, like, dude, like you, you have just been crushing it from the second you left school. My God. Yeah. Beast. Yeah. So I, I actually worked in the banking industry starting off at around 18 or 19. Okay. That, that, that makes more sense then. Yeah. And then after that is when I kind of got into the, the, uh, the trading uh, side of the business as far as from a professional standpoint. And so, yeah, um, I was able to ramp up fairly quickly. And I think that Options Express experience really, really helped me propel my career because it was uh, an opportunity that uh, you were able to, you know, if you worked hard, you got the opportunities to continue to grow and, and make a, a dynamic uh, opportunity for your career. And that's kind of how all those things uh, snowballed. So I've managed, I started managing a team about seven years ago, about seven, seven and a half years ago. So yeah, was at, you know, 24, 25 ish. So, and then after that, uh, once again, kind of came over to the media side. So I've been doing media for about three and a half years, three and a half, four years. Got it. Got it. You, um, in your story, you mentioned that you had been exposed to a ton of different markets. You said that you started out with fixed income, winded up, um, trading derivatives, which you said you primarily, um, trade, you dabbled a little bit in, um, Forex. You've, you've, you've worn a lot of hats, as you said. Um, and you mentioned that derivatives is sort of your favorite. I would love to get some more insight on why that is, what makes, um, the, the derivatives part of our market um, so special to you? What, what, what do you find so interesting about it? Yeah, so you're going to hear a lot of people like, oh, I like to do math and all that stuff. Like it's it's a part of it. Um, but the real reason why, and I have to just throw some disclosures out there. The real reason why is because, uh, you know, being young, uh, you may not have a lot of capital to trade. Um, and so in order to kind of uh, utilize your capital in a way that you feel is, is best, uh, you know, compared to your risk tolerance, if you will, um, options provide uh, that opportunity. Now, <clears throat> they are very risky. You can lose all of your principal. You can lose more than your principal if you take you know, short positions that are not covered, short call positions, things of that nature. So I have to throw that out there. Um, but the reason why I liked options is because I was able to uh, take a small amount of income and be able to uh, transact in the market and try to uh, ampl amplify returns uh, at the end of the day, you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat it, uh, but I also will say that that comes with a lot of heartache uh, and a lot of learning. Uh, and, uh, you know, you continue to learn. And that's why I really, you know, kind of got into it. it was just being able to to take, you know, 200 or 300 dollars and, and actually have a position that could be meaningful in a, in a sense. And a lot of people want to and, and this is kind of like on FinTwit and FinTwit's great, but. There's this misconception that like you have to you know bankroll a thousand into like a million in like a year or you're nothing, right? Like that's not the case. Like you got to be able to make your own goals and and have that match up with your trading strategy. So like when I first started off, it was my, mainly just trying to cover my expenses. Like if I could cover four or five things every month by trading, and not even big things, cell phone bill. Um, when my son went to daycare, because daycare is like crazy, right? Uh, you know, let me cover my daycare, you know, my daycare costs if I can. If I let me cover XYZ bill that's out there. That's what made it a utility for me uh, and why I enjoy it. But once again, that also comes with a lot of risk. And I've had, you know, really great trades and I've had trades that are not so great <laughs> and leave a bad taste in your mouth. And that still happens till this day. Uh, so I think that's kind of the reason why I have a passion for it. Forex was actually very interesting. But the problem that you have with the Forex market is that the central banks take action, right? And sometimes they don't tell you. And a lot of times they don't tell you. So um, it's nice uh, in certain respects, but you can have your stop blown out like that. And you can have uh, you know, significant gaps in the marketplace. It's the most liquid market that's out there. Used uh, I don't know what the, the, the statistic is now, but it's like when I started trading, it was like $5.5 trillion that were flowing overnight, like in 24 hours. I mean, it's a very liquid market, but you've had scenarios where, uh, you know, like the Swiss bank, I remember this so uh, so fondly. Like the Swiss bank, this is a couple of years ago. It had to be about almost almost eight years ago, right? So I was. Uh, it wasn't me actually trading. I was actually in the office, and the Swiss bank just randomly just went out there and just like crushed the market. 
And that's when FXCM, I'm not sure if you guys know who they are, but FXCM had some issues. Some other broker dealers had some issues. So there's a lot of risk when it comes to Forex. And that's just the thing that kind of was, was great about it in certain respects. But you could go to sleep and wake up and your stop uh, would be 400 bips or pips um, away from where the market was because it can move so drastically. You know, Every time that I've, because I've, I've, I've learned from, <clears throat> I've learned from several Forex traders in the past and it's like, that's the one sort of event that like sticks out in everybody's mind where it's like, here's, here's why you use stops and here's, you know, here's the sort of things that can happen in the market. Like, you know, just a, a prime example of like, you know, you, you, anything can happen, right? Like you, you never truly know like how, how many people had trades on during that time that, you know, they're so confident that, you know, this trade's going to work out or whatever. I don't have my stop loss in. And then just, just like that overnight by one decision, you know, it sort of, it, it unravels. And, it, you know, it, it reminds me of, um, it's very similar to like the, um, the, the, um, the flash crash in like 2011. I feel like that's like the people that I've learned from who've traded index and like derivatives, especially like who traded vol, like that's their one, like, like um sort of moment where it was like here's here's the type of things that can happen in this market if you're not sort of careful like that's everybody's like favorite uh anecdotal story i guess from like um back then so yeah that that is that is definitely a great point um that you bring up there yeah kevin so a couple of things that you mentioned number one when you talked about you know fintuit you know paints a certain picture we talk about that all the time very very important you know setting your own goals and what I really loved about what you said is that when you first started trading, your goal was, okay, if I can cover some of my expenses, something as small as a phone bill, like that's a massive win. And we talked about two episode, episodes ago, something called playing your own game. And so that was you recognizing your game and playing it. And your goals were, okay, if I can trade, if I can now take the skills that I'm learning and I could use that to cover something as simple as uh, a small phone bill that can obviously over time become something as big as your rent can become something as big as, OK, now you have extra money because of trading. But people come into the market with the idea that they need to just knock it out of the park right away. So I think that that immediately shows your discipline that you had early on understanding. And as you mentioned, you had those bad trades. We all have those bad trades, especially when you're trading derivatives. You talked about how, okay, I had a small amount of capital, so the best way for me to leverage my money would be through trading options or through trading futures. And a lot of traders come to the market with that mentality of, you know, I don't really have enough money to actively trade the mega cap stocks, so I'm going to dabble with options, but they also don't respect the fact that you can get smoked. And so you have to find the balance of how much money can I realistically make? What should my goals be, Right. When you first start trading, a win is losing less. And then it slowly becomes to where, okay, maybe you're flat for the month. And then it becomes, okay, maybe you made 500 bucks for the month. And it slowly starts to tilt in your favor. When you were first trading, and you also talked about how you, I believe it was at Options Express that you were alongside some veteran traders who had traded on the floor what were some things that you learned early on that you believe helped you sort of develop the proper mentality to respect and trade the markets, understanding your risk and how that then led to you beginning to have more and more success? Yeah, so I, I think that's actually a really good question. So I think the biggest thing for me is everybody has their own system, right? So if you copy somebody else's system, it may work out. But a lot of people's systems are, are built out and they have the awareness in their mind, right, where something doesn't feel right, where you might not feel that. And so I think that's kind of the, the things that I've been able to, to take from it. And then you just see so many different strategies. I mean, I've, I've seen guys that would trade uh, like they would trade like super out of the money options uh, and, the, you know, nickel options. You know, somebody that's called a nickel trader, but they would just trade nickel options on earnings. And that's what they would do all earnings season. And they would go out and they'd buy maybe 20, 30 contracts, right? And they would lose on 99% of those trades. Uh, but every once in a while, they'd hit. And when they hit, it hit really good. Uh, and it's kind of like learning that strategy. And it's, it, that's not a great strategy, by the way. That's just more like somebody <laughs> who's being fun. But here's the thing. The reason why I bring that up is because 
they're not just doing it just to do it. They're doing it because they they can see in the marketplace where uh, vol is not calculating the actual move that could actually take place, right? They're looking at the fundamentals and saying, you know what, I believe that XYZ company is going to actually outperform because of uh, flight data showing XYZ, right? We see more people flying over to Florida, so maybe that, that's going to help Disney or, or that's just an example, right? Uh, and so they would actually utilize these nickel options and they would trade, they had other strategies too, but they would find companies and say, hey, you know what, they, could, they can knock it out of the park. Crocs was a really good example. That's actually one of the traders uh, was trading Croc options. Uh, and Croc used to do that. It used to have violent moves to the upside or downside, but mainly upside during its heyday. Uh, and he would be able to, to pinpoint it because he knew that market. And, the, and that's the biggest thing that I recommend to anybody. Like, if you're getting started out in trading, trade what you know. It may not be this most sexiest sector out there. But if you can trade what you know, it makes you feel a little bit better because you have like a, a little bit more of an understanding of what that industry does uh, or what the trends are looking like. And I kind of use this as an example and you guys are going to probably laugh at it. The person, if you think about it, the person that's at, let's say a gas station, right? They're a gas station attendant. You may think one way or another about that position, but they probably know a little bit more about what's going on in the gasoline market than you do because they can see what the trends are. They may see that their store is starting to slow down because of uh, you know, prices going above $4 or $4.50 a gallon. They may see the fact that they may not get uh, uh, the, the deliveries like they were getting beforehand. The truck deliveries in itself may be slowing down because of supply chain issues. The, 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 that's an individual that just living in the, the day in the life that may be able to take those nuggets from their own experience or from their own uh, you know, career or job uh, and being able to say, okay, I know the dynamics that are going on in this marketplace. Let me start off there. And so that's just another thing that I say, investing is really scary. But if you start off investing in something that you know or are confident about, maybe you have a passion about, then that makes it a little bit more comfortable. You're able to weather the storm a little bit better when you have uh, some skin in the game and some knowledge about the, uh, the products and the stocks that you're trading. And was that your mentality when you were first starting to invest? Basically just looking at companies that hey, you know, I go to Chipotle once a week or, you know, I loved Disney growing up. So what I did when I first started off is I just learned one company. So that's a really good question. So let me just break this down here. So there's a cohort of traders out there that think that they have to keep and monitor 30, 40, 50, 100 stocks. They have these watch lists that are just miles long and they find opportunities doing that. That might be a thing that you know works out for them. The best traders that I know, and I've interacted with some pretty high profile traders, okay, I'll just leave it at that. The best ones that I know traded maybe no more than three stocks, but they knew those stocks like the back of their hand. They knew as soon as they saw a a volume spike on a certain candle, boom, it's time to get in, boom, it's time to get out. Now it's trading in this range. Now they can sell premium. They knew it like the back of their hand. And they were really great doing it and the returns would show. So for me, I kind of took in that approach and which is why I kind of focus more on, you know, sector base and then I'll drill down into certain companies. But I really don't focus anything outside of like the S&P, you know, 100, if if that, um, when it comes to trading. Uh, And the first option that I traded um, on a stock was actually on, on Transocean. Once again, not a recommendation. But the reason why it started off that way is because Transocean at the time was trading at $6 a share, had options that were trading at $0.05, cents, $0.10, cents, $0.20, cents, right? That allowed me to say, oh, okay, I can put $20 up and just see what happens, see how the market dynamics go. I can buy something that's at the money. I can pay you know, 20 IV on it or something that's you know, a 50 delta. I can see an earnings reaction and their earnings may have moved the stock up 20 cents and then my premiums, you know, for the most part gone. Now I can see, okay, here's what's exactly happening, right? IV crush. That's how I learned. And that's, everybody's different and you pick a different stock. um, It's just something that I kind of gravitated towards. And so once I started learning Transocean, I started learning more about the, um, the oil markets, the energy markets. And that's kind of, uh, you know, one of the main markets that I really uh, focus on right now um, is energy. And that's just always been a passion. So that's kind of how I 
got started. Learn one or two, three stocks, learn the charts, learn the fundamentals like the back of your hand, know who the management is, know where, you know, if the CEO is going to leave soon, if they are kind of hinted towards that, know the ins and outs of that company. You can do a considerable amount of damage if you knew the ins and outs of one or two or three companies rather than scanning 500 and putting on 40 or 50 different you know, positions and trying to manage those. And then it gets hard managing those positions once you start to ramp up the portfolio too. Hey, Noah, what do moving averages, RSI, and MACD all have in common? They're all lagging indicators from the 70s with weak ability to predict future price action. Exactly. Modern retail traders need modern trading tools. That's why we've partnered with Rocket Scooter, an artificial intelligence and algorithmic charting tool that predicts where high volume will occur before it happens. That's right. Rocket Scooter's 15 unique indicators help visualize in real time where institutional players are interested on almost any stock and gives you a clear-cut game plan for how to take advantage of the underlying mechanics of the market. A platform like that probably costs a ton of money. Right now, they're offering three months of Rocket Scooter Pro for only $35 a month, knocked down from the original price of $179 a month. Take advantage of this monster deal by heading over to the link in the show notes and getting started using Rocket Scooter today. One of the things you, you touched on there is that throwing um, a position size on, for example, in this Transocean trade where you you know the options are pretty cheap, let me just put it on and sort of see what happens. And I feel like that's something that gets lost on a lot of um, newer traders in particular. It's like if, if you don't if you don't engage the market and are not afraid to necessarily take a loss, take a take a risk that, like you said, twenty dollars, forty dollars, whatever it is, an appropriate risk that you know you still have some skin in the game, but it's not going to make or break you if you win or lose. Seeing just putting something on just to see what happens, I think you, like a lot of development comes from that space, and I think that a lot of people try to avoid that because they they don't like to lose, and it's like I don't want to put on this trade. What happens if I lose, right? And it's like you, you have to sort of go through that. You have to go through those. Um, you have to you have to go through those moments of let me just see what happens because how else are you going to find what works if you don't actually put it on? Like back testing is great and going through historical data on charts and is great and all that, but I think. You know, really the, the massive amount of learning, at least for me as a trader, really came from actually doing it and doing it wrong. Right. And then if you're somebody who's, you know, passionate and determined about it, you're going to say, OK, well, why? Why was this wrong? Why was I wrong here? And that's sort of where the learning occurs. Right. Is really like after a loss. And so that's what it just seems like. It seems like traders who particularly because I, I, I know this feeling because I've, I've been there who are afraid to take a loss. You're just hindering your own growth at the end of the day, because you're not going to be able to have those experiences of, okay, I was wrong here. Let me go and figure out why. Right. I think that's a massive part of, of sort of growing as a trader. And it seems like you've, you've had some chance to do that. It's human nature, right? I can go an hour and talking to you about, you know, IV crush and gamma squeezes and X, Y, Z. But until you actually go in and say, okay, well, I have this idea that X, Y, Z stock's going to go up and pop because of earnings. And maybe the stock doesn't pop and it stays right there and you have a call option and 50 delta call option that you you know spent you know 20 IV above what the you know, a- average is. Uh, until you actually go out there and see, and see that the next day the stock may have popped, let's say 1% and the market opens and you're like, well, why isn't, my, why isn't the premium going up? Why am I down? Right? And then you're going to be like, oh, okay, this is, this is what IV crush feels like. And then that's kind of what it's you know how it sticks in your mind. Another example: um, some people uh, don't. Some people place market or- orders at the open, right? They have them right before the open. They place a market order, especially on options. Op- options are going to be very wide, right? You don't have that experience until you actually do that, and you have uh, you know, let's say you have a ten by twelve uh, pricing on your option, and you know when it opens up, it's ten by twenty, and you get filled at 11, right? That's still a legit trade, uh, you know, unfortunately, but you didn't get what midpoint, uh, you didn't get the midpoint on it. So that's kind of like the same type of situation. You learn and grow on those, uh, you know, those experiences. And we try to do as much as we can to try to explain it. But sometimes people just learn by, uh, you know, trial by fire. I think that's kind of exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. And that's perfectly okay. I think people need to understand that's that's really what it is. I mean, the real problem is you could tell a new trader 
all right, you probably won't be profitable for the first six months. You probably won't be profitable for the first year. You may not be profitable for the first two to five years, but in that learning period when the market is just giving you information, it's telling you this works, this doesn't work, and it's just you know a process of doing that over and over and over again for months, if not years, when you're in the trenches, it still becomes very, very difficult. It's like I could tell you, okay, you have the potential to make uh, you know, and you know, there's unlimited earning potential when you come to the market. But for the first two to five years, you're probably not going to make a lot of money. You tell somebody that, and they say, "Okay, okay, you know, I'll, I'll learn, I'll learn, I'll figure it out." But then again, when you're really going through it, it's not so easy, and it's that period of, man, like this is this is so hard. Well, yeah, we we told you it was going to be hard, right? But that's not that doesn't really register for the human mind because especially. In today's day and age, everything is instant gratification, right? It's so easy. It feels like even in, you know, I'm thinking about like school and, you know, I went through engineering school and it was very, very difficult, but trading compared to engineering school doesn't even, it's, it's a completely different thing because there's no, okay, if I study, you know, if I cram 12 hours before my exam, I'm going to pass the exam and then it's on to the next obstacle. Trading is you're going to, you know, study for 12 hours for the next 24 months and you may be profitable. So it's completely different um, when you look at it in that sense. I have a question about your personal investing and your personal trading, because as you mentioned, you're on the TD Ameritrade network. You cover various markets when you're on Wolf Spaces, you're talking about all sorts of stuff. How do you differentiate between noise and what's important to you in your individual trading and your individual investing? Because your job seems to be to, as I mentioned, cover various markets and to be all knowing. Correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, but at least that's what it seems like. And you do a really good job um, at your job. But when it comes to investing and when it comes to trading, it's super important to you know be able to focus in, eliminate noise in order to be successful. So how do you differentiate from the two? Well, I, I live and breathe this stuff. So I, let me uh, kind of just delineate here real quick. So uh, once again, I don't, I don't really trade individual stocks, as you could probably hear <laughs> for right now. Re- rarely do I uh, do that. And if I do, uh, it's a stock that I'm not actually talking about on the network, uh, but I rarely trade. I-, I mainly trade index options. I mainly trade futures. And uh, trust me, I'm not throwing any size out there that's going to disrupt anything. But um, I live and breathe this stuff. So every day, all day is what I'm, I, that's what I'm looking at. I'm looking at what the market is doing. So I'm, I'm also, you know, doing my job and doing my research and then also kind of seeing what the price action is of XYZ stock, what's happening with the sector. Um, what's happening on the macro side of the business that's going to be able to potentially impact the stock either positively or negatively. So that happens literally all day, every day. And then even when I'm done, uh, I'm still looking at the markets. I'm pretty much looking at markets all day. If I'm not hanging out with my son or playing Call of Duty or reading, or I just got done with school, just got my master's last week. If I'm done with school now, I'll have a little bit more free time. Thank you. But um, I'm literally just always going to be in tune uh, with the marketplace. And it's just something that uh, it's more than just a, you know, a job. It's really a hobby for me. And so that's kind of how I look at it. I don't really see that much noise, if you will. Um, so uh, there is a lot of noise out there. There's a lot of things going on. Um, but what I try to do is really just focus on what can have a dynamic impact on the marketplace. So for instance, I'm more of like a bottom-up type of uh, person when it comes to analytics. So we can take AI, for example. I can break this down here really shortly. Um, let's take AI, for example. It's a nice theme. Everybody's trying to get on it. I think it's kind of fizzling out here a little bit. If you say AI on your conference calls now, uh, it doesn't really give you that, that uptick like it used to. Um, but if you look at the AI space, the first thing that I think about is, yeah, the applications are going to be great. And it is going to be great. And AI has been around for the last 20 years. Companies have been utilizing AI, even if they don't know it. Um, but now it's being able to communicate with a directly human to uh, you know, computer model or what have you. Um, so I start thinking of it from a bottom-up approach. So 
large language models in itself, what are you going to need? You're going to need to have infrastructure. You're going to need to have power. You're going to need to have a delivery system, which is going to be your network. So in order to build out infrastructure, you're going to need to have the raw materials in order to do that. So then it's focusing on, okay, well, what raw materials do you need um, to be able to uh, scale up uh, a large language model? That's another, that's first question too. Who has the access to those raw materials right now? Uh, and then I go and work up that scale. Okay, so now we know where the raw materials are, where the commodities are coming from. Now they have to go through and implement. Now you're actually building the GPUs out. Now after you take the GPUs and build them, you have to then obviously sell them and then create a network for them. Who's the network provider? After you do that, you have to have the security mechanisms in place because we talk about these large language models, but think about the security risk that is out there. If you have an individual or you have a model in itself, a model is nothing but a script. It's nothing but lines of code. Imagine if you had a hacker going into and exposed to your code and they just change one weight. One weight on your model. When we talk about weight, Models are basically built out on different, uh, you know, mathematical calculations and things of that nature. They don't even have to like delete anything. They don't have to copy anything. What if they just change one weight? That one weight change can change your whole model. So you're going to need to have security that's in place. So who's going to be the security provider for that? Who's going to be able to implement the software that's going to continue to go above and beyond those software plays? Google, Microsoft. So that's how I look at these markets. No matter if it's AI, no matter if it's um, is solar and, and wind generation, no matter if it's you know, Nike shoes. That's kind of how I take the approach, and that's how I try to weed out all of the noise, all of the hype. Let's get down to the basics. Where, who needs to source what, and then who has that material, who has that opportunity, who has the skill to be able to capitalize on it? And that's where you find the opportunities. It's very interesting. It's, it, it makes a lot of sense, exactly what you just said. Investing in general your approach almost seems backwards from what most people do. Whereas you look at AI and then you work through the sort of webs and branch out to, okay, who are going to be the key players? Whereas a lot of investors come to the market and they'll look at Google, they'll look at Apple, they'll look at Microsoft, and then they'll look for how are they going to be involved in AI. And I'm not sure that you know one approach is necessarily better than the other, but there may be a sort of misunderstanding when you go to the the larger players first and then try to figure out, okay, how exactly are they going to play a role versus looking at the greater theme, which is AI in this case. You know, we're obviously using only one specific example, but if you look at that specific example and then you branch out, it may be easier to find those key players. Yeah. So yeah, let's build on top of that. The higher you go up in the food chain in pretty much every market, the greater risk of competition that you have, the harder it is to pinpoint who's going to be the winner, right? So if we go back to it, and I'm just going to be completely candid, let's go back to this example. Who needs the raw materials? Who has the GPUs? Who can actually scale up? Who has uh, the ability and the knowledge to be able to build just the GPUs in itself or even just to source the materials needed? At the end of the day, the demand is already there. So that's going to already flow upstream to that, to that company, right? They're going to benefit. And here's why I say I'm going to be frank with you. Let's say AI is a bust. Doesn't matter because that individual, that company that's able to get those raw materials, they're already selling. They're already selling those products to XYZ person, right? XYZ person then has to capitalize. That's their job. So then that goes to uh, the networking side of it. Who has the network? Who has the, the infrastructure in place? Who can put those in place? Perfect. There's only a couple of people that can really do that right now, maybe. But there's the competition's more. There's a lot more competition, so it's harder to pick out who that player is. Perfect. You have your network in place. You have your LLM up. You have whatever XYZ product. Now that goes to the product provider, the software makers. Guess what? Competition is, once again, harder. That's a lot harder competition. The opposite side of that, though, is that the margins are usually higher the higher that you get up traditionally, right? So Microsoft could run an LLM, this example. Let's say they roll out uh, you know, this LLM, right? They may have uh, you know, operating costs on that LLM at 90%. It's not uncommon to have a software company that has uh, you know, 90%, 80%, 70, 75% operating margin or pretty much free cash flow off of a product, off software. People talk about that with Tesla all the time. 
That's not uncommon. That's their structure. But they're also spending a lot more on R&D. The competition is a lot tougher. People have a lot more access. So that's why I say, you know what? I'd rather get the base. Let me get the base of this foundation. Or I'd rather focus on the base of the foundation because at the end of the day, the top echelon, they, there's going to be winners and losers there, but it's going to be a lot harder to be a winner and loser when you only have two or three companies that can do the base foundations of this. Blockchain is another example of this. Blockchain, huge hype, right? Huge hype. But what did you need? You need compute power. So when it first started off, um, you know, crypto, people were buying just GPUs offline, putting them in their basements and running them. God, do we miss those days. True decentralized crypto. You know, it's not like that anymore. But what happened? Who had those resources? Who had the GPUs? Who could buy them? Boom. Now all these people are buying the actual equipment and now something new came out and you have servers and all of these, uh, you know, farms that are out there. Uh, that can mine crypto a lot quicker than that person that had the GPU in their basement, right? But at the end of the day, the person that's selling that raw product, that GPU, they already made their money, right? It's not on them anymore. And that's kind of what I'm looking at uh, when I look at markets being developed. Who is at the ground floor of it? And then when it flows up from there, you know, it gets a little bit harder and harder because of competition and, and trying to monetize. I love your approach to how you sort of break down trends and you, um, the way that you evaluate sectors in the market and sort of make your decisions based off of that. I know through Wolf Spaces, we touch on a lot of the, um, the macro news that comes out, whether it's inflation, um, you know, whether it's jobs data, whatever it is. Um, I would love to know if you have like a similar process for um, dissecting macro data and sort of using that to your advantage in your, uh, your decision making in a day to day basis, particularly as it, re- as it relates to uh, your trading, because I know that you trade a lot of indexes. Um, and index options and those things directly impact, obviously, the price action that you'll see um, on a day-to-day basis. So do you have any sort of framework for how you um, dissect like macro news or, or your macro view as a whole and then sort of distill that down into individual, okay, here's how I'm going to capitalize on this in the markets? Yeah. So I'll pull it away from my personal trading um, a little bit here so, um, so things don't get misconstrued. So macro data is, there's a lot of it. There's a lot of macro data. The thing that's going to be key is going to be how you map it and, and how long you're tracking it. So there's a hundreds of thousands of different data points that are out there. Um, what you want to be able to find is the outliers and, and always ask yourself, okay, how can this impact XYZ? So a couple of weeks ago, I put, uh, you know, we had a chart uh, that I put up and I just said, hey, uh, you know, we may see a little bit of a spike in wheat, right? There is a, you can make a technical case for wheat, but trading ags is actually very difficult unless you're from the sticks like myself, because <laughs> I like, grew up in Sure Grove, Illinois, um, and, you, and I grew up with farmers. But if you don't know that market, it's really tough. You can't just look at a chart and say, hey, from a technical standpoint and not know from the market, here's where this can go from X, Y to Z, right? Z- wheat right now is being harvested. So there should be downward pressure on wheat as supply gets onto the marketplace. But when you start seeing and hearing the, you know, the strikes uh, from Ukraine and you're not seeing any type of action strikes on Ukraine and you're not seeing any action coming from Russia uh, as far as trying to extend the grain deal, that perks it up because Ukraine is a significant supplier of wheat uh, and other grains, um, not here in the United States, but really in the Middle East and, and African nations. So then you're looking at it and say, okay, there could be some risk here. There could be an impact on wheat. And so you look at the technical setup. It was trading at the bottom of its range. Uh, you look at the macro impact. Wheat markets and ag markets have limit up and limit down restrictions. So that also can create vol on top of all, um, if that makes any sense, right? Um, how much anxiety would you have if you had a market that you were trading that just halted? And you couldn't get out of your trade uh, or, or you, it was limit up and you couldn't get out of the trade on the upside. You can only go to the downside. How much anxiety does that create? And then when that market opens up, everybody wants to flood that market again. Boom, ball spikes again because everybody's trying to get out. And then it's this domino effect. It happens in the sugar markets. It happens in cotton. It's happening in live cattle. Uh, it happens a lot. So that's another standpoint or a, a setup where you're like, okay, this could create a domino effect. People may start talking about this. And that's why you look at a setup that it pushed to the upside. It wasn't going to be up there for long. 
Uh, and it actually might push up there again, honestly. I mean, we're starting to see Ukraine starting to hit Russia in their ports, which is something that people really didn't think about. And that could have a dramatic impact when it comes to grain markets, but more so on the oil side of the of the spectrum. So that's kind of how I look at the macro data. And I, that's just one type of uh, scenario. That's a macro event. But even the macro data in itself, CPI, usually you're going to have CPI prints come within like, what, 0.1, 0.1 or 0.2 basis points of uh, about 0.2, ba- uh, 0.20 basis points, 0.2 points, if you will, uh, between what the Fed, uh, Cleveland Fed's going to project, right? So then you have to look at it and say, okay, well, where can the outsized move come from? Backing into it, what's happening in energy, what's happening in electricity, what's happening in the shelter market, how can this all back out? How can I model this out uh, to see if there's going to be a, uh, you know, outsized move in CPI or PCE or PPI or things of that nature? And that's how I kind of just like take the data on. So it's more of a hybrid approach. I probably am more like 60% technical, I would say 30% fundamental, right? And then 10% is just how could people react? Because this is what the market's about, right? It's all about people's emotions. Um, I can tell you right now, this equity market's been overvalued for the last four months and it continues to ride. This would be the highest PE that we get um, to come out of a bear market with LEI or the leading indicators being this low. But the market keeps going up. And so you can't fight that trend, even though it is overvalued. And I do believe that at some point it will cool off here in the latter half of this year because of seasonality. But you can't fight that. And so if people aren't going to hear and, and, and really care about what the data is, then you got to put that aside and kind of put your ear to the ground and see, okay, well, what's, what makes you think that this market is fairly valued and why do you think it could continue to go up? because you want to be a trend follower, right? So that's kind of how I try to break it down. This episode is brought to you by Elite Trader Funding. ETF is a prop trading firm. For those of you who are unaware of what a prop trading firm is, they basically provide you with capital to trade with, and your only risk is the monthly subscription fee. How it works is once you pass an evaluation account, you then become eligible for real money payouts. Now, there are a lot of prop firms out there, but ETF's customer support, the products, and the styles of evaluations they offer are unmatched. I traded and passed a 150K evaluation account, and they were always willing to answer any questions I had along the way. I wish that I had been introduced to them when I first started trading. Thinking back to all the money I lost when I was new to the game, getting the chance to trade a large account while only risking a monthly subscription fee makes too much sense. Not to mention, if you're trying to trade a small-sized account, you can develop some pretty bad habits. Trading a funded account lets you really put your skills to the test by trading more realistic size. Head to the link in the show notes to start your journey as a funded trader today. I remember you mentioning a couple weeks ago on Wolf Spaces that you've been on the sidelines for the majority of the rally that we've seen during the first half of the year, or that you at least didn't expect or anticipate a rally of this nature. And I don't mean to put you on blast, and I'm sure I'm certainly you know not trying to make you feel bad about it, but the reason I'm bringing this up and why I'm asking you is because I'm really curious as to what you have learned this year that you will now be taking with you moving forward. Why was it so unexpected? Why was the rally and the strength of this move so unexpected? And what could you have been looking for that you weren't looking for at the time coming into this year to maybe have helped you position better? Yeah, so Alejandro, that's a really good uh, question. So here's the first thing I'm gonna say. I'm kind of like building out the the, the brand, right? <laughs> at the end of the day. I never wanna be known as the person that's cheerleading when I'm able to identify when a market's gonna do X, Y, Z, right? If it's gonna go up or go down. And I don't wanna be the person that's like, uh, you know, quiet and hiding off in the in the corner when it doesn't go my way. I don't respect people that do that, honestly. I mean, everybody in this market, if you're a real trader or follow this market, you are going to be wrong at some point in time. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. If you think, if somebody tells you that they're right 100% of the time in this market, I'm going to call them a liar because statistically, it's impossible to be. So that's one thing. Um, two, I also kind of get a little bit... Um, the perma bulls in this market, and you guys probably know a couple of them that I'm probably going to talk about here, 
they've been coming out before AI and saying, hey, no, this is, you know, this market's going to rip to 48 and 49, blah, blah, blah. And this is the reason why. If you took AI out of the question right now, you take the market cap out of NVIDIA, Microsoft, and Google right now, and you had the same economic data, I can tell you the VIX would be a lot higher. I can tell you the market would not be this high. AI is what brought this market out. And anybody that tells you anything different than that, I am a little bit suspect. You have falling year-over-year earnings. Now, if you've seen earning guidance actually also coming down, you have LEI, which is leading indicators, which includes the S&P 500 and market performance at levels that we haven't seen in a very long time. You have macro indicators out there that are looking uh, not, you know, not too great. They're starting to look better, but they're not looking too great. So at the end of the day, let's say a bulls got bailed out. And I respect those that say, hey, yeah, I was a bull in this market, but I did not expect to have AI. I did not expect to have this run to the upside. And then for bears, look, you got, we have something that's a secular market that's about to explode right now. Um, who could have called that four months ago, five months ago? No one can. So I'm not going to say I'm going to take anything back and say, well, I got to readjust my, you know, my thinking here. Um, what I am going to say is that, yes, I concede that um, I didn't expect that AI was going to be this big of a thing. ChatGPT has been out for a while. I've utilized ChatGPT for a while for programming, right? Um, I didn't think that the mainstream would actually pick it up as quick as they did. Um, that, that, that did take me uh, by the wayside here. Um, but I would also come back to say I think that the market is very overvalued. Um, the market has a lot to prove when it comes to the earnings multiple. That bottom line E number has to come out very strong in order for this to be able to sustain. And maybe it will. Um, but I can tell you right now, um, looking at this earnings announcement, the earnings announcement, this earnings season right now, it's been mixed. I haven't heard a lot of like markets. Great. We're going to do fine. There's been a lot of caution uh, by executives and uh, you know, we'll see how it's going to happen, uh, what's going to happen in the latter half of this year. So that's how I'm going to put it. I don't want to be the name, I mean, the, the guy that's like, I'm, I'm, you know, I know what I'm talking about when a market goes my way. And then, you know, when it doesn't go my way that I hide off because um, a lot of people are doing that right now that we're bearish on this marketplace. And a lot of people are flipping um, their thesis um, because of what's happening. I just don't, I don't. I'm not going to be that person. So I'm, I'm just going to throw out the charts. I'm going to talk about what I'm going to talk about. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. It's just, it's just how it goes, right? And that's how we should have everybody. You should have somebody that's a bull, perma bull. You should listen to somebody that's a perma bear. You should listen to somebody that's a, a, a really good technician. You should listen to those that are able to watch option flow. You should get all of that data, aggregate all of it, and execute in a way that you see fit. That, I think that's the biggest takeaway. You know, it sounds like having that having that mixed approach and really just getting as much data as possible is is so beneficial because I know that like one of the things that to just sort of piggyback off of your point where it's like you you really do have to listen to other people and like what they're talking about is that like you're not it's impossible to be an expert in everything like even like take this conversation for example like talking about large language models like I I I know for a fact that I don't know anything. <laughs> about like AI and like I'm sure that Alaron is in the exact same boat like I know for I know chat GPT I've used it and it's like kind of like remotely cool like that's like the pretty much the extent of my AI knowledge I know that Nvidia um is is leading the charge in terms of of um supplying some of the things that that this this next revolution is going to need right that, that's more or less the extent of my AI understanding if I don't listen to other people who have a deep um fundamental understanding of um, the trends that are going on in artificial intelligence, how am I supposed to be able to make informed decisions, right? It's like you have to listen to people with specialties in their own area because a lot of times, you know, especially as traders, you're going to have one part of the market or, or one thing that you know really well. And most of the other stuff, you're you're not really going to have a focus on. You even mentioned it earlier how most of the really good traders that you know focus on just a few things, right? And it's like, if that's going to be you and you're just going to focus on a few things, it doesn't mean that you necessarily want to ignore every single other data point that comes in in a good way to 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 not do that a good way to take all of those things into account and still make informed decisions while not you know distracting yourself with too many signals is to listen to the people who are experts in their field right if you're somebody who studies healthcare um, and, and you study the, uh, the healthcare sector extremely um, well and that's sort of been your thing for like the last two decades and you start talking about how Eli Lilly has some sort of diabetes drug that you know 
was supposed to be for diabetes and now it's starting to, to work for weight loss and, you know, starting to pick up volume, like I should probably listen to you. And then I'm going to be in Eli Lilly when it squeezes 15% on earnings, right? Like that's the type of thing that, you know, you listen to people who don't necessarily, um, do exactly what you do, but are um, specialists in their field. And that's where you can get those added pieces of um, information and conviction that you may not have um, otherwise. I think that's a massive point as well, um, you know, just to, to, to learning over the long term. There's four actions every trader can take, right? There's four of them. A lot of people think it's only two, buying and selling. You can buy something, you can sell something, you can hold whatever you have, or you can sit on the sidelines and watch. Some people don't have a problem. I don't have a problem with sitting on the sidelines and watching. You have a really good example, crypto. I am no crypto expert by any means, right? By any means. Um, and so I never got into that, that craze. So, but I, I'll follow the market, but it's just something that it's like, hey, you know, I don't want to participate or, you know, in that marketplace. It's just not me. I don't, you don't have to do what everybody else is doing, right? That's kind of like what I tell my son. You don't have to do what everybody else is doing. Just do what you're doing. And I think that's a huge thing that you're kind of like alluding to here is like sometimes it is nice to just sit back and say, hey, I just want to see how this is all going to pan out. And it could just be entertainment. And you can kind of get knowledge from that, but you don't, no one's forced to participate in a certain market. No one is. You make those own, your own choices based on your own comfort uh, level your own risk tolerance. If you don't know and you don't, you're kind of sketched, uh, and you're like hoping that you're catching on to the right train. It brings more anxiety than than joy. And in, in my experience, that's just me. It's also just like not like putting in the work in a sense. Like when I take a trade, because I'm kind of like you, I, I only really trade indexes, don't really touch um, like individual stocks except for like long term investments, things like that. Um, but when I take a trade, it's because you know I've put in the work to understand like where my setups are going to form, when my setups are going to form, when I should take a trade, where my stop loss should go, where I should take profit. I've done all that work already, right? But it's like when the opportunity comes up and somebody asks me, you know, how's Bitcoin here? Like, I get, I like, if you're involved in markets, you get those questions all the time. It's like random people asking you, like, what do you like about this right here? And it's like- It used to be weed stocks. Yeah, and it's like, look, like, I don't, like, I don't know. Like, I don't, I didn't put in the work. That's me every time we go on Wolf Spaces. <laughs> Kevin, I'm not kidding you when I say that the only chart I look at is the S&P futures chart. It's kind of ridiculous. I started doing that because I legitimately, you know, I would look at other charts. Like, you know, obviously I know where like my investments are, like the handful that I own. But for the most part, during the day, I am literally only looking at the ES chart. And every time I come on Wolf Spaces, it's so funny. Like, he'll ask me a question and we always laugh about this. He's like, oh, like, have you been looking at the travel stocks? Like, what do you think? And I, every time I say, like, look, man, I am not going to, you know, even attempt to talk about something that I have no idea. Like, for me, I have found what I need to do to be successful. And to some other people, it sounds ridiculous. But, man, I mean, you at the end of the day, you really just have to find what works for you, what you feel is important to you, which is why I asked you earlier I don't know if you remember when I asked you, I know it, like your job, you have to cover so many different markets and, and all this stuff. And so I was kind of trying to pick your brain, trying to understand how you can at the same time be successful in your own investments when, because for me, maybe it's just how my brain works, but anything outside of the S&P futures chart is just noise, right? And I just am super focused on price, but it's also because of my style of trading. I'm a day trader and you know I trade using technical analysis and it's super important for me to have that clear head and not worry about the CPI print or not worry about earnings because at the end of the day, that's not gonna help me. But somebody can be doing the complete opposite of me and they don't use technical analysis and they're just a fundamental investor. And so the price of a stock can be completely irrelevant, but understanding the fundamentals and understanding the macroeconomic environment can mean everything to them. So very interesting how people navigate and find their way, but also you have to have the confidence to say, you know, I'm going to do me and, you know, you do you. I would say there is there is a benefit for looking at, at sectors. And I think Monative on Twitter, uh, in the Twitter spaces, he said this today, uh, and I was going to say, you know, commend him on this. So while throughout the day, obviously I'm looking at the indexes, um, but I'm also looking at every sector because you also, when you're trading something, you want to know how something's built, right? You don't want to just trade 
what's actually happening. You want to figure out how it's built. Price action is really good with that. And you know, I read a, good, a really good uh, quote the other day um, that there is no, no such thing as just a fundamental trader and a technical trader, right? Price charts in themselves are going to encompass all of that data that's readily available no matter if it's fundamental or technical. Because if you look at it and the price or chart looks overextended, most likely the valuations of the company and its t- fundamentals are probably overextended as well. So fundamental traders are going to say, hey, no, this is overextended. You know, This price to sales ratio, this uh, price to earnings ratio is overextended. I think it's time for me to get out. You're looking at a chart and saying, you know, from a price action standpoint, this is overextended. You're going to get out. You guys both accomplished the same exact thing, but you're looking at two different types of ways of the marketplace. Price reflects all of it. I think that's going to be key. Two, I also look at the sectors because you want to know what the fundamental makeup is of the S&P 500. You trade the, the it sounds like you trade the futures. So um, let's say right now we uh, have moved up fairly significantly over the year, right? It's been overextended, especially when it comes to technology, uh, the technology sector. Um, well, what's the biggest sector that has an influence on the S&P 500? Technology. What's the next one? Communication services. You can go down the list. So I can look at it and say, okay, well, if technology and communication services, this is an example, uh, if they're bottoming out, those two both command, I want to say 35 to almost, almost, well, they have a rebound, maybe 35%, 28 to 30% of the total S&P 500. So if I say, hey, and I'm looking at a chart and both of those sectors are bottoming out, well, how much influence are they going to have on the broader marketplace if they do bounce back? right? That's when you can take that directional trade. So that's why I kind of look at the sectors as well. If I'm looking at real estate, and real estate, the chart looks horrible, by the way, but if you look at real estate and you say, oh, okay, this thing could have a move to the upside. Well, how much of an impact is that going to have on the broader marketplace? If Apple looks like it's overextended, Microsoft looks like it's overextended, how much can that have uh, impact can it have on the overall marketplace? You're seeing it in real time right now. They're both touching, basically touching their 100-day SMA. Market sold off, right? Even though other stocks have been able to do really well, other sectors have been able to do fairly well, communication services in itself has been able to catch up to the technology, but you're still seeing the broader market sell off. Well, that's because of the weighting. So that's where I find value in trying to look into some of the sectors and the subsectors to be able to try to uh, make, you know, put that piece of the puzzle. And you can even go deeper than that and look at, what makes up those subsectors? If I say technology is overweighted and you're looking at the XLK, uh, it was 40% of the XLK in itself, I believe, is like Microsoft. If I'm not mistaken, I'll bring it up here in a second. But you have to be mindful of that. You have to be able to say, you have to be able to say, okay, um, one stock, oh, I'm sorry, the XLK, Microsoft's 22.32% of the overall XLK. Apple's 22.29%. So you're looking at an, at an ETF that's heavily weighted to two stocks. So if those two stocks go down, well, guess what's going to probably happen to that overall index? Unless you're going to see a massive rotation out. And even if you did see a massive rotation out, guess what? The fund flows in itself is still going to have a negative impact on that index. So it is good to be able to kind of see like under the hood, look under the hood, see what you're trading because you can get um, potential trends that way. Even though NVIDIA is in that same market and you may say, hey, NVIDIA can continue to move higher. NVIDIA is only 4.8% of the XLK. So you're going to need to have NVIDIA move dramatically to offset any losses that you see from Microsoft and Apple just because of the the actual setup, the mechanics of the ETF in itself. There is value there. Yeah, unfortunately for me, I know anytime the XOK goes down because that's pretty much uh, what comprises the majority of my portfolios. So I know exactly when Tesla goes down and exactly when Apple goes down. But it's funny, Noah and I were talking about Apple and we were looking at the chart, I think it was a few days ago, and we're having a discussion and we're like, Does it look good here? Does it look good here? And I said, Apple is the stock that you buy and then you hope that it keeps going down. Just you could uh, buy it at a cheaper price. Um, And, you know, we are getting a little bit of a pullback in uh, some of, you know, everybody's favorite names in August now. And people are starting to get a little bit nervous, it seems, after what has been like eight months of uh, straight up. But it is what it is. It's how the market works. Kevin? This has been an awesome conversation, brother. Your career to this point, I mean, just extremely impressive. 
um, you know, everything that you've been able to accomplish. And, you know, I'm obviously very impressed with you and it's inspiring um, to see how far you've come and, you know, how far or how much rather you've learned um, from the market. And it really just goes to show that, you know, this industry in particular, if you just put your head down and you work, doors open up and it's just amazing to hear from, you know, you were 14, 15, uh, you know, watching CNBC to, you know, now you're on TD Ameritrade Network and I'm sure you'll be on CNBC pretty soon. Don't let uh, the company hear that. But uh, it's it's just really awesome to see how far you've come. And thank you for sharing all your knowledge with us. Alejandro and Noah, thank you for having me. Hopefully we can actually do this again sometime. We can chop it up with a couple of charts or something. I'm always uh, open to, um, you know, uh, to this opportunity here. And you guys are doing some really big work as well. I definitely well respected within the financial community. So I'm really excited to be able to, uh, you know, make this network and, and hopefully uh, we can do this again fairly soon and, and, and try to you know, see if there's any other opportunities in the marketplace or just talk about some areas where uh, there might be some growth. Absolutely, man. Thank you for joining us once again. Noah, another awesome episode. I'll see you next week for episode 85. Yep. Thanks again to Kevin and we'll see you guys next week. Our content is intended to be used and must be used for informational purposes only. It is very important to do your own analysis before making any investment based on your own personal circumstances. You should take independent financial advice from a professional in connection with or independently research and verify any information that you find in our podcast and wish to rely upon, whether for the purpose of making an investment decision or otherwise.